Ecclesiastes 7. That's page 556 if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. Uh, we've been in this book now for a number of weeks. We think it was like, most likely written by Solomon, but I actually read uh, a commentary this week that made a really strong case for not Solomon, and not that I'm you know, ready to give up on that, but I was like, oh, those are really good thoughts. So it reminded me again that much like the New Testament book of Hebrews, that the author isn't really the important piece. And whether it was Solomon or not, it's still God's truth that we believe he breathed out through the Holy Spirit to give to people like you and me to help us live the life that God has called us to. So today, we come to Ecclesiastes 7. Now, by way of introduction, I actually want to take you back even hundreds of years before this uh, to the story of Job. It's actually one of the oldest stories from the Bible. And Job is quite a, a hard story to read. You come through it and you say, Lord, what, what is happening here? Why would this righteous man who has been a faithful husband and faithful father, one that has apparently worked hard and followed your will and, and served and blessed so many other people through his life, why would he experience such a great inequity? There's almost a heartlessness that emerges in his deep loss. And if you know the story of Job and just start thinking back through how in one day he lost not only the vast wealth that he had worked hard and God had blessed him with through the years, he lost the resources uh, of cattle and uh, other animal life, and then the news comes in that all 10 of his children are dead in a day. And the calamity of that particular year is deepened by the loss of his health. So that it's not just a matter of, well, let's just pick up and start over. But he doesn't even have the capacity to, to do that. And as he suffers, his dear wife, who has also lost her ten children and watched their, their home, her nest, so to speak, just collapse on itself, she comes to him and in a moment of desperation says, oh, dear Job, curse God and die. And Job doesn't curse God, but in chapter 3, you do read these words where he curses the day of his birth, and he actually says, let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. And you continue reading, and you come to verse 11, and he says, why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come out from the wound and expire? He's wrestling, as many here are wrestling or have wrestled. We all hit those moments where we just say, you know, it, it might have actually been better if I had not been born. At the end of Ecclesiastes 6, Solomon asked the question. You're already there in chapter 7, so just back up one verse to verse 12. But he asked this question question who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow who knows what is good for man and then the second question which is equally important for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun What's going to happen when you pass away and your children are left behind or a spouse is left behind? What will happen in a hundred years if Jesus doesn't return and another generation or two have come after you? And the answer is we don't know what's coming. 
We don't know what's coming in the next hour. That's part of the reason we turn on the news. Some of you, like, that's almost the first thing you do in the morning. You know, is, is the world on fire any more than it already has been? I mean, it, it really is an insane moment, but we don't know, and you'd be a fool to try to predict it. We don't know what will happen in the next hour, let alone might, what might happen in the world when we lived out our days, and Solomon is wrestling with that. It, it's knowledge and understanding that is actually hidden from us, and that's actually part of God's wisdom and his goodness, as we're gonna see in this passage this morning. So, so Solomon is actually straining to see the same kinds of things that you and I are. Well, who can tell me what's good about my life? Because it feels like it's all suffering at this moment. And who could possibly make clear what's going to happen after I'm dead and gone? In this passage, he's actually going to help us begin to see some things that really are good. Yes, even when there's suffering and difficulty and confusion and pain. But he also begins to hint at the fact that for the God-fearing soul, because he's begun to lay that truth down, fearing God is what life really is all about, he's gonna begin to hint at the fact that the best things are actually in the life to come, not the present day. And he proceeds to answer these two questions that he has laid down here in chapter six, verse 12, um, and he begins to answer them with a series of comparisons. So you follow along as I read, and you just begin to, to note the comparisons, and the little word better is gonna be the key to seeing that, and, and just try to identify how many of them he has and uh, what he's really saying here. So this is the word of the Lord. You follow along as I read Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools." Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. As we've been doing, I'm going to try to summarize these under some broader headings. Some challenging things here, but some rich things. I told you that there's a series of comparisons. I count seven of them specifically. There's one other. I I had eight, and then I I withdrew that one and said, well, I think it's implied, but I'm going to just stick with seven clear comparisons. Now, what's interesting in these comparisons, it's easy to think that he's saying, well, because this is better than that, 
that whatever falls into that column is actually a bad thing. But I don't think that is the case. And at least for five of these comparisons, I would actually say the, the lesser thing is actually a really good thing, and that ends up highlighting the better thing. Did I just confuse you by saying that? Am I talking in riddles? Let me just show you straight out. So look at, look at verse uh, one again, and we're gonna group several of these comparisons under one larger heading, and here it is. Funerals are better than parties. Some of you are like, wait a minute. No, no, stick with this, all right? Go back to verse one. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, precious ointment is actually a good thing. It was both valuable in the ancient Near East, and like any good perfume, it makes the place smell better. There's something to be gained by having precious ointment in the house. And Solomon is establishing for us that a good name is better than this good thing uh, that we know as precious ointment. How about the day of death being better than the day of birth? It would be easy to look at that as as a statement of despair, but I don't think that's the only way it can be taken. Uh, And we'll fill in more of of this thought uh, in the course of the message. But when you begin to lay that comparison next to a couple of other statements that Solomon is making, you begin to understand that he is not saying the day of birth is a bad thing. He's actually saying the day of death uh, is better than the day of birth if you live your life for the right reasons and you live with the right understanding of the God who created you. So funerals remind us, first of all, of the value of life's legacy. It was about 10 years ago that there was a horrific story that came out of Massachusetts where a 14-year-old boy had actually murdered one of his, uh, one of his teachers, brutally murdered her. I was struck as I read through that article of a, a, just a little line that they had lifted from the funeral service where the pastor who preached that service said uh, of this young teacher that was beloved by so many, uh, uh, he made a poignant statement, perhaps we should ask not why or even how she died, but rather why and how she lived. That's the point that Solomon's getting at. We all need to be thinking in terms of why am I living and how am I living? You know, like costly perfume spreading its fragrance beyond where it is applied, a good name, a life well lived, spreads its influence beyond its duration. That's what makes some of your memories of a loved one or a friend so precious, even though they've been gone many years, they lived well. They were wise in the way that Solomon is reminding us that we need to be wise. I wonder if you're living that kind of life, living first in the light of God's great truth, living in the reality of his great presence, living for the purposes that he created you for, you know, many people are looking for a great cause to embrace, and, and some feel the emptiness of their existence even down to the point where they're like, what am I doing with my life? And so they attach themselves to all manner of causes from saving the planet. You know, when I was a kid, it was save the whales, save the polar bears. Well, now it's the whole planet. So we're terrified that it's going to heat up to a point where we're just going to melt back into the, you know, puddle of pre-mortal goo that we came from, which that's not actually what's going to happen. 
So we give ourselves to this cause and that cause, and yet many people miss the great cause that God has created them for because the great cause, the, the, the single greatest thing you can live for is to know the God who created you and to love him in response to how he's loved you. Then the secondary cause that flows out of that, and it's, it is as important and great according to Jesus, is you love others. But a lot of people want to bypass the first great purpose that they were created for, to know God and love him. That actually would be a wasted life. Be great loss. As Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? No, funerals remind us of the value of life's legacy. Here's a second thought. If you go to verse 2 and beyond, funerals remind us of death's finality. You see, it's actually good to attend funerals and think about the end of your life because we're all going to end up there. Solomon writes, this is the end of all mankind and the living lay it to heart. Then he says, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. You see, the sadness you experience while mourning the death of a relative or friend should result in a, a wise assessment of, well, how am I living? And when my time comes, what will I be remem- remembered for? One of, the, one of the unique experiences, even privileges, I would say it's a true privilege of pastoral ministry, is, is uh, you get to spend time uh, with funeral directors. The church I came from in South Carolina was significantly larger than Gospel Hope, that consequently we have more funerals. And you get to know some of the directors well enough when you're in a place long enough. And one of, one of the directors that I really enjoyed spending time with uh, was named Jerry. Jerry had an interesting story. I even said one day we were riding out to a cemetery for a committal service, and I said, Jerry, I gotta ask you, how did you end up in this? Because, you know, frankly, it just seems odd that you wanna live your life and spend your days helping people plan funerals and then overseeing these things. And he began to actually, it surprised me, the story that he told was he, he grew up way out in the country um, and he's, his grandmother was the, the woman in the community that people called when they had a loved one died and she came in and helped prepare the body and made all the arrangements for the wake uh, as they called it in that particular area. And he said, I saw the ministry that my grandmother had with people in one of the hardest moments of their lives. And I thought, you know, if God would let me, I, I wanna give my life to that kind of ministry and service. And I thought that was beautiful. But Jerry could tell some great stories. And on another occasion, I said, what are some of the funniest things that have ever happened to you? And, and, you know, funeral directors do have a sense of humor. You sometimes have to dig for it a little bit. But Jerry goes, and he's Southern too, and I won't do his accent justice, but just in, in, in your mind's ear, just imagine a thick Southern accent as Jerry began to tell me, oh, Pastor Danny, there's a funeral that I uh, directed one time, and it was a long service, almost three hours, wailing and weeping and carrying on. And when we finished the service and we, we began to, proceed out of the church and down the front steps and the pallbearers on either side of the casket in, in, in a sweet and southern, you know, gentlemanly way, he said, and, and this was a large woman. He said, but as we made it down the front steps, the bottom of the casket turned loose, and, and listen to this description, and the deceased fell to the ground. <laughs> the deceased and he said, and then you should have heard the carrying on and wailing that commenced. 
And I said, Jerry, what did you do? He goes, well, what can you do? You, you've got to put things back together and, you know, go on with this thing. Oh, Jerry could tell some amazing stories uh, and entertain for hour after hour. Now, I don't share that to make light of funerals at all. It's a tender time. And I've been through enough of them and, and know the weight and, and sorrow that we all experience But you know, funerals remind us that death is coming for all of us. It's unavoidable. You've only got so many days on planet Earth. You only have so many holidays to enjoy with your family and friends. And honestly, you don't have enough to to squander them in petty squabbles or ruin them with stubborn demands of family and friends. How many times have you gone, and maybe some of you have even said it personally, but you've attended a visitation or a wake or a funeral, and you've heard somebody express deep regret that there was a family fracture that was never mended. That's an added sorrow when you weep because you've wasted precious time. Look at verse 4. Solomon says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Wise people are always thinking, my funeral's coming. Sometimes, at a point like this, you might say, well, that's just kind of morbid. No, it's actually wisdom. Occasionally through the years, I've even heard people say, I don't do funerals. Well, you should. Because God says the wise keep a piece of their heart in the funeral parlor. One of my favorite authors, commentators, um, has written that to be in the presence of sickness or death has a tendency to bring us quickly to the really crucial issues of life. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. Let's press on. Look at verse five. I'm gonna group a few other things together. Rebuke is better than entertainment. Solomon begins to talk about how a a wise man will rebuke uh, a person that he loves and that this actually becomes uh, a, a gift. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. A rebuke is simply a correction and it may include a warning it may include you know, some kind of caution in advance or it may include correction uh, of something that has already transpired. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 13.1, a wise son hears his father's instruction but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. What's a scoffer? Well, that's a person who would even receive some kind of rebuke or correction or instruction but who turns it into a joke would actually jeer the person or mock the person who has come, but treats the other person and the message with contempt. You don't want to be a scoffer. Scoffers are often cut off suddenly without remedy. They are akin to the fools that Proverbs also lists. Passages like Proverbs 17.10 tell us that a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. A wise man unveils the realities of life. Oh, that takes me back. 
That's like the phone that sat on the kitchen counter that was plugged into the wall, you know, that had a cord on it that you could stretch maybe 15 feet. Some of you grew up with the, the, the phones like that, right? That's what it sounded like. Thank you for, for taking me back. <laughs> a foolish friend, though, so oh, I'm falling behind here. So a wise man will unveil reality. That's what the rebuke is all about. He sees or hears or observes something that, that needs to be addressed in your life. What a gift that is when somebody comes to you and says, brother, I love you. Or as a parent says, child of mine, please listen. That's a gift. It's the fool, though, who masks the realities of life. Look at, what, look at how Solomon describes this. The heart of fools, he says in, at the end of verse four, is in the house of mirth. That is, he only thinks about the next extravagant party. And then he goes on to describe the song of fools uh, in verse five. You say, what is a song of a fool? Well, it's a song that has no substance to it. It's not inherently immoral, could be, Uh, That's not absolutely necessary, but as one author writes, the song of fools is, if not immoral, yet morally and spiritually hollow, senseless, unbridled madness. And so the fool who entertains his own heart with, with vain and empty things also becomes a diversion and distraction to his friend. He's masking reality. There are actually more important things that need to be dealt with. And his heart is entertained by those things lacking long-term significance. That's the point of, of verse six and the little illustration of crackling of thorns under a pot. Those of you who've camped and built a fire know that you can, you can light a fire you know, with dried out pine needles and, and get a quick flame, but you're not gonna cook over pine needles. You need wood that has some substance, and if you're you know, gonna cook a big meal, you need to find... Th- a really good thing is to find seasoned hardwood. Get that good bed of coals. You can put baked potatoes on there and you're not like continually throwing pine needles in there. Well, that's kind of the image here. There's just no substance in it. So rebuke is better than trivial entertainment that will temporarily hide the real issues. Rebuke is better than entertainment. Let's press on here. The long view is better than a short view. Look at verses eight, nine, and 10. This is, this is a great portion Look at verse eight, first of all. Wisdom patiently waits for God to write the good ending of our story. You say, where do you get that? Well, hold with me, and I think we'll, we'll build a, a little bit of a case for this. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Then Solomon is gonna talk about the patient in spirit versus the proud in spirit. Then in verse nine, he's gonna say, be not quicken your spirit to become angry. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. And then verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? Is not, uh, it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, real important question here, even before we go much deeper is, well, who are we asking these questions to? Or who are we asking these questions of? And I think what's clearly implied is God. God's at the heart of this, and so this is actually a bit of a a conversation and dialogue with God who oversees all of this. Now, back up to verse eight, and and I want you to think through this with me for just a moment. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Have you ever watched a movie with someone who isn't patient enough to let the story play out and see how it will end? 
And whether you've seen it before or not, it's more frustrating when you haven't seen it either, and yet, you know, your friend or family member, whoever's there going like, well, why did he say that? What, what, she's gonna do that right now? What, like, what's that about? Do you know how the story ends? And like, there's this barrage of unending questions, and after a while, you're like, can you shut up and let the story play out? I did not pay $12 to sit here and, and listen to you, you know, ask a series of questions that I don't know the answers to. And I, can I just say before some of you fill in the blank, I'm not like preaching a you know, passive aggressive sermon at my wife at this moment, right? <laughs> Truly. Now she does ask more questions in life than I do, but I don't, I don't mind watching a movie with her. So don't, don't, don't assign that to her or to me right now. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And it's the patient in spirit that are commended here. You see, these are the ones who've who've learned to wait for the full story to unfold. It's the proud in spirit who think that they know a better way for the story to be written or actually get angry that it's not being written the way that they want it to. And I want you to think with me for a moment of some of the stories in the Bible, how many of them transpire over years and decades, and very often the people in these stories have to wait for God's full work to unfold and be accomplished before they actually experience the good. It was 25 years between the time God gave Abraham and Sarah the promise, not just of a son, but said your descendants will be more than the stars of the heaven or the sand of the sea. And yet tw- for, for 24 years, you know, 11 months and you know, however many days it was, they didn't have one child. God, what are you doing? We thought we were gonna have a family that could you know, be numbered like the stars of, of heaven and God saying, wait, I'm writing the story. Joseph had to endure 13 years of great suffering and injustice before in a moment God exalted him to great power and influence to the salvation of his entire family. Hannah was childless for many years before Samuel was born. Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless into their old age before God gave them John, the greatest prophet Uh, second only to Christ in his age. Anna was a widow for many years, the scriptures tell us, serving in obscurity in the temple with fasting and prayer. She was 84 years old when she finally saw the Christ child. The woman with the issue of blood suffered for 12 years, spending all of her financial resources for a cure that no one could give her until Jesus arrived. Wisdom looks at the stories that God writes and begins to understand that the end is better than the beginning. And wisdom learns to wait patiently for God to write these beautiful endings in all our stories. Look at verse nine. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Well, here's a second thought. Wisdom guards against anger with God while we're in the middle of the story. And that's that's the point that Job was at. I cursed the day I was born. Had I known that I would be here at this moment, it would have been better for me not to be born. But he's in the middle of the story. And he doesn't know what's gonna happen yet. He just knows that it's a crushing weight that he has to bear at the moment. And you know, it's understandable that we find ourselves angry when life is not going the way we think it should, when circumstances are far beyond our control. 
or understanding. But the Lord warns us, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. Look at verse 10. Wisdom, this is really helpful, but wisdom refuses what I want to describe as nostalgic discontentment with God while living through the hard circumstances of the story. Solomon says simply, say not, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. He's not actually contending with the fact that the former days were better. Some of you can look back and say, those were better days than now. This is harder than it was then. This is more difficult or confusing or perplexing than then. Yep, but don't ask that from a place of nostalgic discontentment. It's more than just reminiscing about the good old days. There's a place for that. And the older you get, the more you tend to do that, right? What we have to guard against is a discontentment against God that says that in, in its own way, God, I don't like you for moving me out of a good season of life or good days and bringing me to this point. The warning is it's not from wisdom that you ask God why it was better then than it is now. And the reason we don't ask that is because when you're living even through the hard circumstances, you haven't gone to the end. If you could interview some of the people, some of the saints that I just mentioned from Abraham and Sarah, you know, through, through Joseph and Hannah, do you think they would write a different story than what God wrote? I don't think so. But do you think it was really, really hard? Well, we know it was. Dig a little deeper into the Abraham-Sarah story where they're trying to figure this thing out on their own and, man, what, what chaos they create and how many times did, you know, Abraham, you know, like hide behind his wife and say, you know, tell, tell this guy that I, you're my sister because I don't want to die. I mean, their marriage was in pretty rough shape at, at least three or four different times in all of that. And yet I submit to you that because of where God did bring them in this life and certainly now in eternity, there's not one thing they would change other than maybe saying, well, if I could live it over again, I wouldn't sin in the way I did. Guard your heart against a discontentment with God even though there are hard circumstances. Now that brings us to the last little portion. Go to verse 11. And I want us to spend these last few minutes looking at the wisdom and work of God. I'm not gonna spend any time in verses 11 and 12, but Solomon says simply, God's wisdom adds advantage to life. And uh, you, you can just dig in a little deeper and study that. What I really want to go to is verses 13 and 14 and just kind of like wrap all of this up because I think there's some really marvelous truth God's work, if, as you begin to consider it, is often mysterious. A technical word is inscrutable. That means you really can't know it fully, understand it completely. But God may be fully trusted. Fully trusted. Now look at Solomon's instruction here. First in verse 13, consider the work of God. That is, 
you need to look at this seriously and come to a conclusion. Consider God's work with a view that we want to come out with a right conclusion or make a right judgment about the work of God. And then he asks this question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Well, it's clearly implying that nobody can make something straight when God makes it crooked. And that's true. That's because God is sovereign. And he does what he knows is best, and he does what he determines is best. But the crooked things of life are the very points that you and I struggle with so intensely. The crooked things are the things in life that we wish could be very different, things that we've even looked at in this passage, like death and sorrow and mourning. Those are crooked moments. And sometimes they are are so crooked, they're life-altering. And you say, my life will never be the same. You're right. But similar to the stories of those who had to wait for the good end of their stories to come, so there are many stories of, of people's lives who were made, made crooked. Listen to me. Not, this is not a, we, we try to defend God's sovereignty in some moments. Our hearts are in the right place, but we're actually making a, a mess of it when we act like, well, God had nothing to do with it. For instance, even in our situation, we haven't heard this much, but there have been a few people who've seemed to you know, indicate, well, you know, Kristen's cancer is not from God. When we read through a passage like this where you, you see it being just plainly stated, verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. If we can't trust God even with the hard circumstances of life, then why would we trust him? It it would drive me to insanity to think that God actually had nothing to do with this dread moment. But if he actually is overseeing it and superintending it, then I can draw a breath even when we're confused or uncertain or fearful to say, God, your ways are mysterious and unknown to us, but we can trust you. Now, I I made a statement that there are people in the scriptures whose lives are made crooked by God for a greater purpose. There may be no clearer example of this than in John 9. If you want to turn there very quickly, but I'm only going to summarize some things. But this this is the powerful story where the disciples are with Jesus and they encounter a man who is blind from birth. He didn't lose his healthy vision. He didn't suffer an accident that took his vision. He wasn't born with the capacity to see. And the disciples asked Jesus a really important question. Who sinned, the man or his parents? Isn't that the way we typically think? Oh, bad stuff happens to you? You must have done something. Well, Jesus has a remarkable answer. In John 9, verse 3, he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Really? Yeah. And the specific work of God that was about to be displayed, if you read through the story, was what I, I, this may not be original with me, but I don't know who I'd have attributed it to, but this is the term that was coming to my mind over the last couple days, a micro-creation. 
this is one of the greatest miracles. They're all fabulous, but to me, this is astonishing because if you, if you study the human eye, you know that I think there are like over 30 muscles and then there are electrical systems that are tied in there and photoreceptors and special cells that God has created you know, to receive light through them and then you're so marvelously created by God that, that your body is designed to translate those things into electrical impulses that go back to your brain so that as you open your eyes and, and you're seeing in 3D vision, maybe that's not the most accurate way, but he didn't just put one amazing eyeball in your head, he put two eyeballs in your head and you can see and perceive color and depth and, and all these marvelous things. This guy wasn't born with that capacity, but in this moment, Jesus creates. It's more than a healing. He creates the capacity to see. And the man who was born blind can see. And then a big debate and discussion erupts and the the religious leaders call him in and want to know, who healed you? And and like there's some big game, some big deception underway. And they call his parents in and nobody really is satisfied with a simple answer. And And the man just says at one point, all I know is that before I was blind, now I see. End of story. But Jesus gives us an even bigger perspective on this than just a marvelous moment for a blind man. Jesus, the creator of the universe, acts in a way and tells us straight up, this actually was done that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's terrifying. And we can, we can roll through a series of questions and say, well, how is that fair? How is it fair that God had this man live into his adult years a blind man? Think of all that he suffered. Think of all that he endured. Think of, think of the, the struggle that his parents had to care for, for him in his childhood and then his teenage years and all of the pressure that they lived under. Yeah. It's mysterious. Would the blind man rewrite his story? We could talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh that the Lord never removed. These are crooked paths. But you know, as I was thinking on this over the last couple of days, there is no path that was made more crooked by the sovereign hand of God than the path Jesus Christ walked. The path of his incarnation winding its way through the sin and shame of the world he created, the disease and death that were the result of his image bearer's rebellion against him. And even our men's meetup on Friday is going through the Gospel of John, and we were just looking this past Friday again, or, or two Fridays ago, actually, I think it was, but just the astonishing thing that when Jesus came into the world, his own creation did not recognize him or receive him And yet there's Jesus walking the crooked path that his father and the spirit and he had decided. And Isaiah captures the crooked nature of this path so beautifully when he writes of Christ. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you think God the Father would send his son into the world, you know, not just in a flash of glory, but like make him the most beautiful man on planet Earth and make him like, like the perfect physical specimen so that people would go, look at this God. But apparently he didn't. 
He was so ordinary that you and I would walk right past him with no thought that this was God come from heaven. He's not only so ordinary that he's easily overlooked. Isaiah goes on to write in verse three, he was actually despised and rejected by men and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Didn't even give him the time of day. Surely, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, that is, we judged him to have been stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. The, the, what's implied here is that we just assumed, well, you die a terrible death like that on the cross, clearly you've done something wrong. We were kind of back to where the disciples were. Who sinned, this man or his parents? For Jesus to be put on the cross, what sin did he do? Or certainly it must have been his parents. But that's where amazingly this crooked road continues. As Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The discipline that brought us peace was placed on him. And in those terrible wounds, we were healed. Oh, the crooked path that led Jesus to the cross. What no one else could see, not even the disciples who were closest to him, who heard him predict multiple times what was about to happen is that the crooked path that led to the cross and into a tomb on Friday would also take a glorious turn and straighten out on Sunday as he rose from the dead. The signal that the guilt of our sins was removed forever. The clear indicator that the debt of our sins had been paid in full and that the most horrific consequence of sin, death itself, lay dead in the grave and life would forever be ours. Yeah, he's sovereign over all of our days. He is sovereign over every crooked path and if you look at verse 13 or verse 14 it, it becomes even sweeter to think that we should be joyful in our prosperity we should be thoughtful in adversity and yes Solomon could only glimpse some things that I think we see in more radiant light and though you and I can't fully understand all that God is doing that's that's the final point that man may not find out anything that will be after him you and I don't know the future but God does so here's the great consolation. And you stand at the foot of the cross and, and you begin to survey the stories of the saints who came before all of that. And we know some stories of saints who have followed since then. And in every single one of them, the crooked paths that led them through suffering and led, through, led them through hardship where they were tempted to question the goodness of God, where they were tempted to be angry that the circumstances didn't unfold the way they should, all of that eventually gave way to glory. And that's the promise for you and me. How amazing. The cross of Jesus Christ is the definitive answer. I know that some of you are in harder places than you ever fathomed uh, you would be, and it's not easy. 
And the last thing you need is some kind of little, you know, spiritual hallmark card to show up in the mail, you know, where, oh, just trust Jesus and life will be good. You know, you can trust Jesus and actually die a martyr. But what we do need to be reminded of, and I'm going to Romans 8, is that because Jesus walked the ultimate crooked road, all of us can be confident that even the crooked places we're experiencing right now are leading to a glorious end. Paul has the audacity to say that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You think it's killing you? It's actually making you more like Jesus. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see the unbreakable chain of your salvation? Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things, to the crooked places, to the crooked things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall crooked things like tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation who will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the God we serve. That's the God who orders your days, knows the end from the beginning, and who has taken you as his own. So in the middle of all this crooked, broken, confusing, maddening, global insanity, trust him and press on in faith. He really does secure you to the very end. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Are you trusting him? Are you living in the security of the fear of God? For some of you, God feels like the greatest threat to your existence. It's actually the greatest security you will ever know. Will you yield to him today? Will you confess that you're sinful deserving of condemnation, but come to him and say, please forgive me. Give to me the gift of eternal life. Heal my soul of my spiritual blindness. Heal my heart of the anger and bitterness. God, I give it to you. 
give my life to you. Will you do that today? Father, you know every heart. Though your ways and works are mysterious and inscrutable, we are not mysterious, unknowable to you. Would you strengthen those whose hearts are weak and weary? The crooked circumstances they live with are overwhelming. Show them today that your grace is greater. And for that one who continues to wrestle for autonomy and independence, gently break them of that and lead them sweetly and safely to the Savior who died and rose again. We need you, God. We need your wisdom for life and we need your works to be made evident to us in this life. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.